0: Hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. It's a pleasure to be back with you in this episode. I've got a guest today who's going to help us explore some ideas about helping those first-time managers that might be in your organization. Uh, or if you're one, if, if if that describes you, this show will be a, a big help to you. Her name is Ramona Shaw. Ramona, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Doug. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, uh, it is a tradition on this show. I always ask my guests to kind of give a little bit of backstory about their journey to get to where you are. And and more importantly, what inspires you to do what you do for other people?
1: Yeah. So I don't know if you've heard the saying where you have the biggest mess is where you have the biggest message. I feel like I, I fall a little bit into that. Uh, my past is in, in finance and in private equity in my past career. And I, started taking over a team, My former was leading my former peers. And through that process of stepping into leadership and realizing, oh wow, the things that make me really good as an individual contributor are actually not the things that are going to make me a good leader and making a number of mistakes, probably all the mistakes that you can find in the books. Um, as I was leading my team is through that early, the early, I wanna say like two, three years or so on that journey. I realized how important it is to invest in my own leadership growth and learning about leadership, not only for my benefit and the benefit of the people that I'm directly working with, but also for the satisfaction and alignment that I felt in my career. We were doing fine performance-wise, but I just felt too frustrated, too stressed, Um, I started losing the the joy of my work because I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. And uh, through that process, I really dove into leadership development. I saw how that changed the way I perceived my work, my ability to work with others changed. And um, I was fascinated by by the, the topic, started helping other new managers go through that journey through my own uh, growth curve and, and learning experiences, and then I made that my my profession, my second career. And I love doing the work that I that I'm doing now. It feels very rewarding to help other people. Sometimes to be the mirror, um, sometimes be the person who instills confidence, um, the one who can challenge, or just help others see a few steps ahead. We may think something is good and working for now. Uh, because we've, we're doing it for the first time and then me being able to pull from the conversations that I have across, you know, now it's been hundreds, thousands of, of managers that I've worked with or trained and to say, you know, here's the scope of, of scope of things to consider and then here are the steps that or the things that likely are going to happen mm-hmm. or you want to be prepared <clears throat> for down the road.
0: I, I've got a similar affinity for, for that segment of the business world. And the way I like to talk about it is I firmly believe, and I've watched it happen through my whole career and and for hundreds if not thousands of others, we have this weird tradition in business when we think we need a new supervisor, new manager, we go out to the front line and we pick the best individual contributor or as we say down here where I live, uh the brightest bulb in the string, you know, we <laughs> we pick them and and say poof, you're a manager and yeah. There's so many things that starts to start to evolve if if the person is not given some specific training opportunity and development opportunity of what it means to be a manager slash leader. The uh, typical thing that happens for most is they get busy and they say, well, you know, I was good at this as a contributor, so I'll just do some more of that and I'll help other people do that. Mm-hmm. And and that works oftentimes to the point of getting promoted again. Now you're not a supervisor, you're a director or a mm-hmm. uh, manager head, department head or or some sort, and then there may be two or three more promotions still yet without this direction and development. So it's just sort of a rinse and repeat mindset that people get into. And then all of a sudden, you start feeling the pressure that the organization doesn't need that from you anymore. They want other things. They want strategic thinking. They want planning. They want forecasting. They want other elements that nobody ever told you about. And mm-hmm. and you're feeling the pressure, so the, the normal response is to double down on what you did transactionally. And, you know, find more sales, do more deals, d- you know, deliver more goods. And you know that's that's not what the company's asking for so yeah. it's a it is a conundrum and it, and i i applaud you for identifying that calling it out and helping first time people you know figure this out so let me just start with some basics are are you usually engaged by the companies themselves and they ask you to come in and deal with a group of new emerging first time leaders
1: It's both. So sometimes um, I work with companies who say, hey, this is a good time for us to train all our new year managers. We have a whole group of people, Um, let's work with them. Sometimes it's part of their ongoing learning development program where every time someone gets a promotion into leadership, that is part of the promotion and which I actually think is a really good thing to do because they get that perk of, oh wow, I I have the privilege and I'm being equipped to be successful by attending this uh, learning or leadership development program. And it helps them to build strong habits and set expectations early on because it's way harder to start to change course and direction and change habits uh, two years down the road. Uh, Not just for us people changing is hard, but also for everyone else around us who's getting used to the type of leader that we are. And then all of a sudden we're changing things. That's harder. Um, And sometimes it's individuals who are Getting promoted into a leadership role and recognize, you know what, working with a coach will be a really good time right now. I want to be successful here. I really care about my career. I care about doing a good job. And, uh, you know, just like any athlete gets a coach, I think this this is what I should do. And they reach out directly to me.
0: Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that. Uh, That is such an important message to encourage people to think about that, that, you know, don't try to go it alone. Don't try to slog through. And I know I I remember all the way back in in my days in in the early chapters of, of my career, when I was appointed and assigned a management role, it—you know—you you immediately get hit with that sense of loneliness. It—it's mm-hmm. like you've got things going on in your head, and there are not that many people you can talk to, if any, about what those things might be. On the one hand, you're afraid to admit you don't know something because you know, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you uh, just don't know who you can turn to. And if you've got the good fortune of having a, some kind of support type group outside the work, then that's nice. You can talk with them. But net-net, it's it's usually a very lonely feeling when you take over that role. You're You're getting confronted with things you never thought you would. And all those people you thought were your peers and colleagues all of a sudden now in some cases become adversaries.
1: Yeah. Or you constantly think about how do I maintain trust right. and how do I stay credible right. um, for to them as a leader or as you know someone who's proving themselves in their in that role. Which is actually interesting that you bring that up because when the programs that i run have a most of them have a social component meaning that there's a small group of leaders who are in the same on the same journey maybe from different organizations or if it's an if it's a, a private cohort right it's within that company but they come together and they talk about specific topics as a group and anytime i do feedback uh, surveys and and the like at the end of a program and i ask what was one of the most valuable aspects or what surprised you the most it's the biggest thing by far is that social aspect and how people benefit from hearing other people talk about their, their doubts, their problems, their challenges, their questions, and recognize, wow, I'm not alone. This is not just me. This is normal. And me feeling uncomfortable and me feeling like I'm walking on really shaky uh, legs here is totally normal. And that doesn't mean I'm doing it wrong. And it also doesn't mean I'm not cut out to be a leader. Right. And that is huge.
0: Right. People have heard me tell this story before. There was a time I was asked to come to uh, a company and and teach a workshop that the company had developed for first-time managers. Mm -hmm. This was a large global industrial construction company. And predominantly, everybody that worked there was some kind of engineer. I mean, that was sort of the nature of the business. Um, but they too had that need to promote up and create, you know, frontline supervisors. So this class was to address those people. And it was a, like a two and a half day workshop. And I arrived, the room was filled. There were about 60 people in the class. And we were going through the first two hours of this program workbook that the company had. And it was time for a break. So we took the break, and there was this line that formed at the podium. And The first person I said, yeah, what can I, how can I help you? And he said, if if everything I'm going to do is what we just covered these first two hours, I don't want to do it. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, "Okay, well, uh, you're going to have to step over here. Let me uh, let me talk to these other folks." And the whole line was there for that same reason. <laughs>
1: That's so funny, yeah.
0: And and they, the the reality and the magnitude of what it meant to become a manager in the organization was just overwhelming to these guys. Now, the mm-hmm. good news was they, they got over that shock and, and we were able to successfully work them through the rest of the process and actually get them turned around and a little more motivated to take take on the opportunity. But yeah, that, that first dose of reality was was tough.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, right, I often say this is for many people, the biggest transition in their careers, not because it's a completely new company, right? If you get promoted within, but it's the first time and probably the only time that you really have to shift your entire mindset from how you see yourself as a value add in the company as an individual contributor is very different as the identity that you have to take on as a leader representing leadership of the organization Yeah. to very different ways to behave, contribute uh, and, and communicate and how you spend your time as well.
0: How do you address the question of the difference between being a manager and being a leader?
1: Yeah, so that is (laughs) such a popular question. I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'm I'm fairly practical in my approach. And I think sometimes we're spending a lot of time trying to differentiate uh, or or define what does leadership mean versus what what does management mean? And these days where it's a lot less of this control and command, uh, a lot less about coordinating or leading or managing someone's time, right? Where we used to say clock in, clock out, attendance rates, who is doing here, who is doing which shift and the like. Now it's about managing tasks or managing by performance. And all that would actually fall if we go by the books the fall into that category of leadership and not... The management part. Um, but anytime I speak to leaders in the out in the real world, the things that they talk about or my own experiences of leading, we're constantly chuckling the two. Like sometimes we, by definition are doing more leadership. Sometimes we're more of a management role. I've yet to see as someone who's actually, you know, only a leader or only a manager or can distinctly say what I'm doing now is only related to managing a task and not managing the the people because we're such a human-centered workforce these days. And that's what's expected of leadership, but also expected from employees.
0: Yeah. Usually when I engage a new client and we go into the coaching work, I'll ask that question. I used to ask the question, do you think there's a difference between management and leadership? And I've Mm -hmm. come to where I don't even start there because everybody has learned one way or another that the answer to that question is yes there is a difference Mm -hmm. so that's wasted time talking about that so i just go straight into how do you look at the difference between management leadership and we begin the dialogue and then inevitably a client will ask me well doug how do you look at it and Mm -hmm. i borrow a phrase from a, a good friend who is a fellow coach. Uh, he actually happens to be in the Houston area where I am. He wrote a book about super-performing CEOs, and he did a really amazing study and deep dive into about two dozen really high-performing CEOs, and he was asking them that question, management, leadership. And what it all came down to is this one phrase, management is about process, leadership is about people. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that yeah. the first time, I immediately went to my own experience in business, and I realized, yeah, that's true. I have known people that are arguably good managers mm-hmm. because they ran a good process. They they hit the budget. They you know hit the deadlines, got the throughput. Everything was clicking, but they were terrible people. People, <laughs> you know. They, <laughs> they their stories often had collateral damage of high turnover rates uh yeah. m- team morale was not solid there were a lot of gaps on the people side of things but um when someone steps up and asserts as a true leader then they address a lot of those people conditions. And you said a moment ago, and I totally agree with you. In fact, recently wrote an article about it. I think command and control should be dead. Mm -hmm. And um, now there are certainly exceptions for command and control to be a viable methodology of leadership, but those are unique and far between. Mm -hmm. But to run a normal business environment... Uh, I think anybody that was groomed in the command and control tradition needs to rethink what you what you believe about leadership.
1: Yeah, and I think that's going to be predominantly more important, especially as we're you know seeing more generations in the workforce than ever before, and so more leaders will have to manage across these different generations. And that's something that often comes up with managers, uh, usually not the new managers, but more mid level leaders who say, you know, I'm really good with these kind of people or with the people who have a similar philosophy of of work or work ethic, Um, and now I have to lead people who are very different from or see work very differently than I do, and how do I motivate them? How do I engage them? What I used to do and what used to work the last 10, 15 years seems to not work with them, and I'm confused. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that just means, yeah, beautiful, like another growth step. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It just means like recognize, yep, yeah, that doesn't work here. It's all, as a leader, it's all about adapting, right? You're constantly right. adapting to the situation and adapting to the people you inter- interact with. this is just another step in that
0: in that same vein let me flip the script a little bit i've -hmm. i've had clients recently who are in that mode of they're the younger up-and-coming leaders in a company and they're struggling with being able to manage the older generations that are a that not they're above them and age-wise but not above them organizationally they're Mm -hmm. they're long-tenured employees but they're part of the team and Uh, In in one case, I can think of the feedback that my person is getting is that, well, you're too young, you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, so how how do you typically tell people they ought to try to address that?
1: You know, one of it is to not take it personally, because that will the moment we start to think, well, I'm this person is disrespecting me, then we probably actually make the situation worse. If we somehow feel that we need to be defensive, or prove ourselves, overly prove ourselves, and be overly invested. Just to recognize that's their standpoint. That's how they see it. Uh, that doesn't necessarily negate what I what I'm doing or what I'm here to do. And then the second part is, if you look at yourself as a product, um, in a way that you're. Um, so hang in there with me, <laughs> as I'm Humans, but if you look at the value that you create in the organization, as if you were a product that the or other people are looking to the value, like looking for the the value of that product. How are you now engaging in that new group, that new peer group, which is potentially even your primary team and then the team that you lead, maybe your secondary team, but it's definitely another team that you're part of. How do I become valuable to that team? And maybe it's exactly the diversity that you bring into that team that allows you to create unique value that others can't. You may be able to see things or question things or support things or... um, you know, bring bring risks to attention to people's attention, bring opportunities to to the discussion. Uh, and but it takes some intentionality. It takes a moment to sit back and think. Yes, how do I show up? How do I add value? How do I engage with these people so that I'm uh, being heard, or I even adapt a little bit to the language that they speak if for them you know, timeliness and being prepared is really important or following protocol or processes is really important. You know, don't be too authentic in that moment. Um, This is the moment they're like, okay, I'm going to honor that. I'm going to show up on time, well-prepared, because that will make me be able to form a stronger relationship and work with them better because I'm adapting my style to better meet them where they're at.
0: I agree with you. I I, I think step one is not get combative in that situation. Don't go on the defensive and don't launch a counteroffensive, but rather see if there's a common ground that you can get to where that, you know, elder, more seasoned person is, uh, you express value to them. Mm -hmm. That the fact that you're counting on them for certain things and, and yes, you know, you are well aware of their experience and, and their background, and you would like to, you know, engage them to be part of the bigger picture that you're trying to build. And, um, it, it I think it really is a, a challenge to avoid, you know, being defensive or, or let it take it all personal because that's, uh, it's kind of the beginning of the end if, if you go that way. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, they know exactly.
0: they got to you if if you show that.
1: Yeah, and that in fact is often the thing that you know distracted d- deducts from the credibility. Um when we're looking at leaders, when senior leaders look at the, the sort of the newly groomed leaders in an organization, they're not assessing them by how well they do when things run smoothly. Right? If they have a high performing team, everyone's super engaged you know, their projects are on time, all that. That's great. You know, it's good signals, not, not, you know, neglecting that. But really what boils down to is what will happen? What will this leader do when they get angry or frustrated? When someone or their team quits out of the blue? When you know, he, that person has an underperformer they need to manage? When a project fails? when, you know, an interpersonal conflict arises, how are they going to manage themselves? And how are they going to support and lead their team through those challenging moments? That's really when, you know, eyes are going to be on the leader and and people will watch and see how how well they're handling it. And those are the things where, you know, any leadership training is helping those leaders prepare for those situations so that they have a game plan. Uh, They have some resources and tools and a support system in place that when this stuff happens, this is not this is not the unexpected, unprepared situation right. that they're finding themselves yeah. in.
0: It's not if, but when. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree <laughs> with you. That's a, that's a very good observation that when things are running well, there's very little attention to what you're doing as a leader. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: when things blow up, that's when everybody wants to know what you're made of and what you're capable of doing. I like that.
1: Yeah. But- and it's you know, sometimes leaders try to prevent these situations. And I often say, you can't, like someone's going to quit. Uh, you're going hi- to make a, a wrong hire. You're going to find yourself with an underperformer um, at some point. You're going to you know, launch a project or an initiative that's going to fall flat. That is, like you said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, so don't get caught up in that. But when that happens, what will you do? How long will you tolerate an underperformer or someone who springs some toxicity to the team? Um, how are you, what are you going to do when you notice you made a mishire? Are you going to rethink the hiring process or are you just gonna say, well, you know, other person's problem, that, that was not me to blame. Um, what will you do? And that that's really what the gold lies.
0: It, it reminds me way back once upon a time when I was a young officer in the Army just getting started, I had a senior officer that took me to the side and said, uh, he said, Thorpe, I got a thing for you. He said, you know, the Army doesn't expect much out of lieutenants, so I'm going to advise you to just work really hard, do a good job, keep your nose clean, keep everything working right. But when the time is right and you see an opportunity, you need to screw something up really big time and then they'll pay attention (laughs) and you, you, you know, don't need to do something that's illegal or immoral and get you in trouble, but just something you blew up, missed up, messed up. And they'll start looking at everything you've done and realize you're a damn good officer, so we ought to, yeah. we ought to hang on. That's so I thought, interesting. Uh, uh, okay. I, was, I was, I think I counted as smart enough at the time to say, well, uh, thank you, sir, for that advice. I'm <laughs> not sure I'm going to do it that way. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny.
1: Yeah. So.
0: Anyway, well, I'll tell you what, Ramona, it's time to take a quick commercial break here in this show. We're going to do that, folks, and when we come right back, we've got a lot more to cover, so hang with us. We'll be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too, and the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's DougThorpe.com. All right, everyone, we're back. You are listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and today I'm visiting with Ramona Shaw. And we're talking about ways to help first-time managers and leaders be successful in their role with uh, that that new experience that they're uh, embarking on. One of the things, Ramona, that I I hear a lot of, and you mentioned it during the break, is this idea of confidence. I think when someone steps into that manager role for the first time, generally your confidence takes a big hit. It, you know, stuff starts swirling, you start doubting yourself, you hear things, people say things, you're unsure, you're unclear, and boy, that whole confidence thing really kicks in. So, what do you typically tell people how they can strengthen that confidence?
1: Yeah. It, well, and just like you said at the beginning, um, there the, sorry, I'm going to scratch that. Yes. And like you said, the the moment when someone moves into a new role, anytime, be this the first leadership role or just taking on a new responsibility or, or a new job, it's the fact that we're making a step, if you look at sort of a um, a bar chart here, and there's this this pillar up here is the outer success, the success that we can measure on the outside. And this is our inner self-worth. Whenever we do a job for a while, we start to feel really good about, you know, we think usually we're at, we're doing a good job, we can do this, we get positive feedback. So the outer success, our job role or our title matches how we feel about ourselves in this role. But then we take on a new job and then naturally there's a gap in between that level of self-worth here that we had job related and that new outer success or that new title that we got and this gap is where oftentimes the imposter syndrome or the self doubt starts to kick in very naturally so the first thing is that i want to say is any t- anyone who feels you know out of their out of their spot that feels a little bit out of their comfort zone that this is normal this is part of the journey it just means you're growing and you're expanding and like I said earlier before the break, it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean that you're not doing it right. it just means you're new you're new to something, you're growing and you're learning and then when uh, as you're going through this and you're starting to practice certain things or you you get better and you expose yourself to new and uncomfortable situations, you'll naturally Get more confident because you're getting more competent along the way. But the thing that puts that spiral or that ball gets that ball rolling, that competence confidence ball, the more competent we are, the more confident. the thing that gets that rolling is courage. And we need to put courage into play in order to to act, and that's the thing to really work on. Courage comes up when we look at uh, fear um, and we consider or we take a step back and we realize, you know, I want to do some, something or I want to say something or I think I should maybe make a decision here, but I worry about it being the right thing or I worry about uh, not making other people happy or someone else being upset with me. And so I'm holding back any of those moments. It's really important to ground yourself in your leadership philosophy, mm. in your values and your principles, and then act in a way that's in alignment with who you are, not what your fear tells you, but who you are and who you want to be as a leader. And in order order to overcome um, the imposter syndrome or self-doubt, my first tip is always ground yourself. What are your values? What are your principles? Who do you want to be as a leader? And then um, embrace the discomfort, but make decisions and act that's in alignment with those principles and your leadership philosophy.
0: I I like that. I I like that dynamic you've described about the confidence, competence and courage. Um, One of the things that comes to my mind in, in terms of how do you trigger and activate that courage part, it's one thing to sit at home and think about what it means to be courageous in your new job, but it's another to put something into action. And one tool that I've advised people to do in those new roles is get really busy and develop for yourself and for your team a 100-day plan. Mm, Start thinking really about yeah. what can I really accomplish in my first 100 days and then make it evergreen, You know, keep rolling it over as time advances. And I was talking with uh, a client a couple of years ago who in the middle of our coaching had the opportunity to apply for a VP job in his company. And he would have been the, if if selected, he would have been the youngest VP in the whole company. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of anxiety about going forward. And we talked about this 100-day plan idea, and he took it one step further. He he got busy even for the interview process. He presented his 100-day plan. And he was interviewing with the COO of the company, and this is a publicly traded company, so this is the kind of stratosphere we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He was interviewing with the COO, and he laid out his plan, and he explained it, and he presented it, and the COO said, damn. Pack that up. Come with me, and they went next door to the CEO's office.
1: <laughs> nice. And he
0: says to the the COO. Says to the CEO. He said, "Look at this plan. This is what you and I've been talking about. We have our guy. Let's stop yeah. the presses." And and so they they selected him to be the new vp
1: oh that's amazing and and he uh,
0: you know he was able to then you know implement that plan and were there holes in the plan sure you know there was a lot of stuff he didn't know about the scope of what he had before him but he knew enough about the department and the company and the strategies and the values that he could he could talk smartly about a plan and Coincidentally, that's apparently what the COO and CEO had already been visioning for where they wanted to go, and here he was, ready to do it. So Sweet.
1: Yeah. Well, that's demonstrating that, that strategic thinking. And I, I would add to that, especially related to the self-doubt or the confidence, Is one is, like you said, that getting busy and making a plan helps people feel more grounded and have more clarity and love that. And then if you start thinking about all the things that could go wrong, And you start thinking about what would be the contingency plan for when that goes wrong. So what if we're delayed on that project? What if um, I'm losing resources? What if there's a budget cut? What will I do then? And will we still achieve it or not? And um, what are these different dynamics? When these things then happen, or if we get nervous about one of these things, because we see there's a a risk is increasing, we feel so much more prepared because it's not... Out of the blue now we've already thought about it and we will act a lot more confidently in those situations as a result yeah of
0: that. yeah i like that well what are some of the first steps that these newly appointed leaders can think about to to kind of shore up and and create their own success in the new role
1: yeah so The what I usually suggest for people to do who are early in their just getting promoted in the first thirty days. It's you know on one hand it's obviously learning. Uh, We have a really good listening ear, asking questions, being curious. But then two, investing in relationships. And I don't just mean go take people out for lunch, but I really mean do a team analysis. Look at the team that's in front of you. What are, you know, talk to people about their unique strength, their unique positioning, mm-hmm. about their career goals, about, you know, what they think goes well and what's not going well. What are their barriers and hurdles and struggles? Uh, look at your stakeholders, map those out, try to identify what are people's goals? What are they working on? And what can you learn about their style, their preferences? Observe them in meetings to try to pinpoint what are, what are they going for, uh, who who do they seem to uh, resonate with or connect with well, or where there might be some friction? Get that lay of the land early on in building relationships, but mapping out the relationships as well. Yeah. And then the next thing would be to set really clear expectations. And you've probably been curious to hear, but you've probably seen this many times, right? we have a situation at hand, something is really challenging, and then we look at it deeper and we ask some questions and we realize they had two totally different expectations and they've never talked about the expectations. And then there's the explicit expectations, like actually goal setting, you know, what are we measuring? What does success look like? And then there's all the implied expectations of how do we work together? You know, what is expected now with hybrid teams? When should we be present? Uh, How quickly should we respond to emails? I recently did a workshop with a team uh, online about team norms, and I asked them. I set up a poll, and I said, "What do you think is an appropriate and respectful time to respond to a co-worker's email?" And you know, you it was just jaw dropping for people to see that some people thought it was two hours, and others thought it was two days, Others thought it was two days, but that's what we then work with in an organization. So aligning on expectations uh, is so key early on.
0: Yeah. That whole idea of expectation and, and with that, right, associated with it is the notion of obligation. Well, you've got all these expectations. All right, fine. But what do you think your obligations are to help make that happen? And And that's a two-way street. That's between yeah. the leader and the employee. So having that discussion, I, I did a whole episode last year. A guy named Seth Silber joined me. And if you're if you want to go back in the archives and look for it, the title of it is Two in a Canoe. Uh, it's a it was a great discussion about this expectation obligation dynamic. And in one form, it's it's kind of contract 101, if you want to think about writing contracts. Because both parties come to the table with expectations, but part of what you put into the contract is obligations. All right. To achieve the expectations, what are you going to obligate yourself to do? And it goes both ways. Again, both parties line that up. And it's a perfect word picture for what leaders need to be doing with their people. Number one, it's the clarity of those expectations. Every employee you hire, I promise you, it comes to work with a, a set of expectations. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to get promoted. I need to make more money, whatever. And and it's combinations of all of those things. And if you as a leader don't understand what those might be, you're missing the opportunity to really get some extra effort out of that person. Because if you can understand and demonstrate true understanding and empathy for those things and help that person achieve those things in the boundaries of what you're able to do, you've got a win-win all the way around.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's not on the leader to have a this this crystal ball to you know and figure it out just by observing another person. This is all about having creating as a leader creating the space and time, and the format to have these conversations. Be, you know. To ask and to capture it and write it down and uh, you know, setting those goals or have these conversations with every single employee and then uh, taking a step back and looking like, okay, with that in mind, how do I need to show up for each of them? And then how do I allocate tasks or how do I uh, build a team dynamic or work with this team dynamic so that I'm keeping people motivated? It's like the you know people who join are usually like we spark the, the little match. Everyone's super motivated. We light the fire. It's this big fire. It's great, but then we have to keep throwing in logs into the fire to keep that fire going.
0: Keep it going, right? Keep
1: it going. And if you don't know the answers to these questions that you just listed, gosh, this is going to be a hard, a tough fire (laughs) to.
0: Well, and, and, and we we could probably do a whole other episode, you and I, and, and I may make myself a note to to talk about that down the road, but I know you do a lot of work in the whole idea of building trust at work, as do I. And, uh, you know, one of the cornerstone or foundational premises of my work for trust is the idea of being able to ask and answer questions. Mm-hmm. And I use the very simple analogy when when we are growing up and we start getting interested in dating other people. When you go through that dating process, what are you doing? You're trying to build trust. And how do you do it? You, you fundamentally ask a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and it starts with little things like, what's your favorite color? What kind of food do you like to eat? Where do you like to go? What kind of music do you like to listen to? And, And you start building and then you get into the deeper life questions. You know, what's your religion? How are you raised? You know, all those kinds of things. And ultimately, you're ticking off little boxes in your mind saying, I can connect with this person. We align on so many things. Look at this, all these things we align on. And that builds that level of trust to finally say, hey, would you like to live the rest of our life together? That's, <laughs> it. Mm-hmm. seems like we're a, a good match for that. And as corny as that may sound to some, that's essentially what the relationship is with the employer-employee. You, you need to have that kind of trust and understanding. But the only way you're going to get there is going through that series of questioning.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes where leaders struggle, and naturally, I totally understand that too, Is the is that we think we're, because we're representing the organization in a way, is that, well, anything that we talk about here in terms of career and what they need and how I can support them needs to fit within that box of the organization. And I think this is where... You know, the, One of the things we have to shed, that thought we have to, or that belief we have to let go of, because in that control and command era that we've talked about earlier, that kind of worked, right? It had to be within that box of the organization. But when it becomes uh, more people-focused and uh, human-centered, then it's not about that organization. It is about the relationship. And when it's not transactional, but it's relationship-based, then that goes beyond the organization, So I may have someone who says, maybe have someone on my team who says, I actually am really interested in becoming a better writer. And so I would say, you know, that's not part of what we do here, uh, but how can I support you? What do you need in order to pursue that interest? And then when you do, you know, where do you see a way that that skill could actually be leveraged in the organization. Would you like to, you know, support that? PR department on some of the writings that they do? Uh, would you like to observe them or shadow them? Now we're finding an overlap between their personal interests as well as the organizational interests and and or goals. And that is that is golden. Uh, or right. someone says, mm-hmm. "I want to in the future become a director or a VP." at a publicly traded company, we may not be the per- the, the company that is, gets the, is the right path for them, but we can then pinpoint, great, if that is your career goal, how can I support you? And we make this engagement here part of your next, it is one next step or the next few steps on the way there, but I am in for your success to get all the way there. You know, I'm not just interested in you performing for me today. I'm building a relationship, and and I want you to trust me that I have your longer term success, at, you know, at top of mind, and I'm interested in in helping you get there yeah. as much as I can within that role and within within that um, timeframe. <sighs>
0: Well, Ramona, one one last area I want to ask you about is the change in the current work environment. And you've alluded to a couple of things as we've talked here today, but just asking you specifically for all the time you've been doing what you're doing and pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, virtual work, return to work, all of that stuff that's going on in, in the real world today, what other things do you see shifting and changing in the way people are coming to work, expecting to work, that drive what a leader needs to be doing?
1: Uh, such a good question. I think there is definitely an aspect of, maybe something I've changed my mind on too um, over the last few years, that aspect of personal relationships that I think in a time where we had a lot more social connections just by, you know, being in the office and being around people or going to meeting pe- friends up for lunch because we're all working in the city or having happy hours and the like, I think with the 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 fact that we have and we work more globally or just spread out and have remote employees and so forth, there's some of us working from home. Uh, the fact that we're looking for more flexibility and we're not all working exactly at the same time or at the same days. I think that uh, creates an increased need for people to feel more uh, or have stronger relationships in the workplace with the people that they work with. And I, th- I used to think that actually personal relationships could get in the way of of you know bet- uh, having an effective team or, or leading well. I still think having personal relationships is really tricky. <laughs> I just see this, I, and I see the uglies out of that, choose too much to let that go. But I do think that that's something that we have to really um, pay attention to. The social connections and social relationships that people form in the workplace are important. And what can we do through you know, offsites or events or team building sessions? How can we foster trust in, in the team even if we're not in the same location? I think that's something that's gonna be really important and managers need to pay attention to that going forward.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the jury's still out on exactly what the bottom line is going to look like. Um, but you've you've captured all the critical issues that I think everybody is, is dealing with out there. There are still company owners, executives that are struggling with the, how to declare their desire for return to work. Um I had a recruiter on this show a couple of months ago and he said when client companies come to him and say, we're looking for money through Friday, 8 to 5, you know, back in the office, he as a recruiter says, i don 't do that <laughs> I, yeah. it, it's a non starter. <laughs> I can promise you i can 't find anybody that 's going to fill that job so we we're just we don 't even have a, an opportunity Searching. here yeah. and, uh, and he said there have been companies that have approached him with exactly that request, and he 's turned them down and they've they 've thought he was crazy for doing so and he said i I tell him i 'm just speaking reality. I can promise you none of my candidates want that kind of boundary anymore. They mm-hmm. want the hybrid work. They want the flexible opportunity. They yeah. do have a desire to get into the office at some yeah. degree, but it's not that hundred percent model that we used to have. So yeah. it, it it is a changing world and I, I've become thinking I've begun thinking in terms of when we look at global history of business we think about the, um, the automation of work going all the way back to the creation of the cotton gin to improve farming, and, uh, and then we get into the so-called industrial revolution when you got the big factories, and then we had the technology revolution. Well, I think we're in what is now the human revolution, mm. I, I think. I think yeah. the people side of business is coming back around to be front and center of how leaders and company owners need to think about work. Yeah. And um, I think the ones that solve that equation sooner are going to be far more successful than others. And there's that that in and of itself might be a whole other show we can get into and talk about, but... uh it, it, it's no doubt a big challenge out in the business world today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, there's some, something about finding the right, finding that middle ground and walking that tight tightrope between, yes, this is about b- being human-centered and um, sort of that conscious approach and and building the relationships and the trust and, and how to attract the different generations and uh, adapt to the new needs of the workplace. And on the other hand, still, How are we not getting distracted by all that from pursuing our actual purpose and driving performance and the business goals? Because this is a business. This is not a community there for the sake of the community. We're here for a a business purpose. And, you know, I'm personally very results focused. And so I constantly see that tension um, as well. And I experience it in my business and see it otherwise. We're how do we walk that tightrope so we're not swinging like the sinus curse, like oh, all the way until we finally find you know the right balance? And I think that's a little bit of where we're where we're in. It'll be interesting to see where we land.
0: Yeah, if if there's ever been a time where the art versus science of leadership needs to be balanced. Uh, we're Sit. there now. We're there now. There's, <laughs> exactly. there's a lot of that. what you described in my mind. It requires a lot of art of leadership, yes. not just the science of leadership. So well, yeah. Ramona, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, tell everybody the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more.
1: Yeah, my website is RamonaShaw.com. Uh, I have a book on Amazon. It's called The Confident and Competent New Manager. And otherwise, LinkedIn will be probably a good place as well, to connect as well.
0: Well, good. Well, as always, folks, we will have that information in the show notes so you can get the live links for all of that uh, by dropping down into the show notes here. And one last time, Ramona, thank you. Really thank appreciate you so much. it.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Doc.
0: I, I can't help but not to contradict or overshadow, but I want to remind everybody that my first book was actually about first-time managers. The title of it is The Uncommon Commodity, A Common Sense Guide for New Managers. I love it. It, it. Was, it was my first book and uh, a work of love. Uh, I, uh, for no particular reason, I've kind of evolved my own practice a little bit more to the, the more senior executive and company owner types, but all along the way, I always remind those guys they need to worry about their first line, front line managers. So uh, I'm still a champion of that. I just don't do the necessarily the direct um, early emerging leader type work that I once did. But nonetheless, uh, that that book is still out. It, it too is available at Amazon and it's there's links all over my website if you want to get to that. But one last um, moment of thought. Uh, I want to remind everybody, if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, check us out. And for now, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you for listening in. I hope to see you again real soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.